What's up, everybody? Just before we jump into this amazing podcast with Chief Master Sergeant Retired Wayne Norad, a.k.a. the godfather of special tactics, I wanted to put a quick plug out there for AFSPECWAR.com. It is literally the clearinghouse for every single piece of information that you could possibly need. You know, a bunch of times you'll DM us and you'll say, oh, I have this question. And the first thing that we ask you is, did you check AFSPECWAR.com? From your IFT packet to directions on how to find a recruiter, which we get all the time, there's a million different resources that are in one in one specific place. So one more time, www.afspecwar.com. Check out the resources tab. Any questions that you have, it's a great starting point. If you don't have your questions answered there, hit us up on the DMs as always. Enough of me talking. We're going to get into this great podcast with Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Norad, the godfather of ST. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Actually, if you're under the age of like 15, you should not listen to this podcast. Go go outside and go play with some uh, go play some sports. We are uh, extremely excited. Obviously, Chief Peaches, myself, Aaron, back here in the team room. I don't know how to properly describe the gentleman that we're about to sit down uh, and talk to. I don't know if we should say legend or giant or just maybe his his commonly accepted nickname, which is the Godfather <laughs> of Special Tactics himself. Chief Wayne Norad. Chief, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for sitting down with us. So I'm just going to turn it over. I have a problem with over-talking. I would just like you, you to take Glad us to be through on. the career that you have had and tell people kind of what your experience is. And then, of course, we're going to jump into some specifics <laughs> later. But can you just sort of give us a rundown of everything starting back when you enlisted in the Air Force to where you are now? Sure. So uh, graduated high school. 1965. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, went with a couple of buddies to California, try to get jobs and everything. And uh, one of my buddies, uh, his house burned down back home in Maine, where I grew up. And uh, he lost his two uh, young brothers. And uh, we turned around and went back to Maine. And I just messed around with my buddies for a few months. And then we knew we were going to get drafted sooner or later. So rather than uh, get drafted and uh, you know, be put into the army for fodder on the front lines of the Marines. We, uh, my buddy and I decided to go see the Air Force recruiter. So we, we signed up on a buddy plan and we went off to basic training on 25 February, 1966 off to Lackland. So, uh, from there, um, you know, graduated from Lackland. I actually, uh, my first job in the Air Force was I was trained to be a, uh, they called it weapons mechanic. I was a B-52 bomb loader. So uh, I actually got stationed in my home state, my first assignment up in Bangor, Maine. It was called Dow Air Force Base. I think they have a reserve tanker unit there now. But it closed down uh, in 1968. And uh, I tried to stay a little bit longer there because my my wife was pregnant with our first child, and she was due shortly after I was uh, going to deploy uh, overseas for a year to Thailand. So, uh, but the base was closing, so there's no place for me to be. <laughs> so they uh, they sent me off. So I went over to uh, Utapau Air Base, Thailand, uh, May 1968. Um, spent a year there. Uh, made me a team chief uh, fairly quickly. I kept track of the bombs I loaded. I think I had my team loaded 41,000 some odd bombs uh, that went into Viet wow. went into Vietnam. And there was probably 12 to 15 teams. So you multiply that times the other teams and, and they would fly out of Guam as well. And 
and dropping uh, conventional bombs, 750s and 500-pounders. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Vietnam is tilted a little bit from all that iron that landed <laughs> I'd there. I'd say so, 41,000 <laughs> <Yeah>. bombs. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, yeah. So anyway, I came back in uh, uh, summer of 69, and the base I went to was P-04 Space, which is now closed. <laughs> um, and that was, uh, like I said, 1969. So I was there for almost a year. And we didn't have any airplanes. They were all deployed. So we didn't really have a job. We would sweep the hangar floor. Then we'd mop it. And then we'd sweep it. We played volleyball in between. That was about it. <laughs> so I kind of got tired of doing nothing, if you will. And uh, they had uh, early outs offered. And uh, so instead of staying all the way through February of uh, 70, um, they let me out in uh, December before Christmas in 69. Uh, so I got out, went back to Maine, um, did a few different jobs, but uh, I decided that I kind of liked the Air Force. I didn't know if I wanted to be a bomb loader the rest of my career, but uh, uh, I went to a recruiter and I walked in and I said, hey, I want to join the Air Force. Okay, well, blah, 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 blah. And he said, oh, you're prior service? Said, yes. He says, well, we're not taking prior service right now. And all of us, I think, along our career that was trying to retrain or whatever, we've always been told no at least once, and then you got to try to find a way. Right. But anyway. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I, I walked out. I was walking out the door of the recruiter's office, and I turned around and I said, I can't believe this. I said, I'm qualified to load bombs. The war is still going on in Vietnam, and you won't take me because I'm prior service. I'm already trained. He said, oh, you didn't tell me you were a bomb loader. Yeah, we can take bomb loaders back. So I went in, oh, okay. sat down, right. and uh, got signed up, and I uh, think I left for Homestead Air Force Base, which is now closed. All these places I've been are closed now. I should have had an assignment in the Pentagon. Maybe they would have closed that. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think we found a problem. Yeah. The problem is you. You've closed You've closed all these bases. Right. You're the base yeah. killer. <laughs> so anyway, I went to uh, went to Homestead in, uh, I think it was October. Uh, what was that, 70? Yeah. And uh, I couldn't couldn't go on the flight line and load bombs right away because I'd been out more than six months. I've spent about 10 months out. So they had to redo my clearance. So I was ch chief of the coffee bar. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> during that time, they sent me to leadership school. I uh, came back from leadership school uh, from McDill. And uh, I was at, they called it CBPO back then, Consolidated Base Personnel Office. Now it's called the MPF, Military Personnel Flight, or flight, flight. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, now it's the customer service section, or something. It's changed uh, names two times since I've been in. So, right. So anyway, I uh, came back from leadership school, and uh, my supervisor was a tech sergeant named Kelly Kippy, and he was a great uh, volleyball player. He was uh, Hawaiian, and he could jump three feet in the air and spike and all that stuff. So he talked me into going out 
for the squadron team since I wasn't doing anything during the day except making coffee and sweeping floors, <laughs> waiting on my clearance. So anyway, I did. And then he talked me into going out for the base team. And uh, I made the base team somehow. And we came to Hurlburt Field for a tournament. And while I was up here, I ran into a couple of combat controllers at the uh, at lunch at the NCO club and uh, talked to one guy in particular. His name was Roger Clare, and he spent some time, you know, talking with me. And uh, that's what I decided I wanted to do when I went back. But I meant to back up from that, though, when I first got back from leadership school, I was at finance and I was filing my voucher. And there was a young looking master sergeant in there with a maroon beret. Uh, hey, so I God, bet he looked really good. Yeah. too. Didn't he? <laughs> so I asked him, uh-huh. I asked him, I said, uh, well, what do you do? Uh, you know, if you don't mind and what's a beret for and da, da, da. So he told me about it. His name was Chuck Hassler. You may have run into Chuck Hassler. He retired as a chief a few years ago. So, uh-huh. so I went to CBPO and I want to be a pararescueman. So they look in the books. Oh, there's no retraining slots for pararescue. They take your guys right out of high school. That's it. So really. So then it was after that that I came to Herbert, played volleyball, met Roger Clare and a couple other guys, went back. And I said, okay, I want to do this job. Do they take retrainees? And they did. And so I retrained in uh, uh, 1971. I went to jump school first. We didn't have a big pipeline, any pipeline, really. So I went to jump school first at Fort Benning, drove my car from there to to Keesler, went through the entire air traffic control course. We took both radar and uh, tower and all that back in those days. I think it was like four months long. And uh, so... I went through that, uh, met a couple of friends that I ended up in, uh, in combat control school with later. Uh, one of the guys you interviewed already, uh, Mike Lampy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, great interview. So it was, uh, him and a guy named Bob Weller, um, was in my, uh, air traffic control school. Uh, I think they were a week ahead of me, but we hung out and worked out together and everything. So anyway, I go back to Homestead. And I had sent my family home to Maine, and I had two children by this time, and uh, I'm wanting to go PCS, oops, okay, uh, to a team. Well, CBPO didn't change my duty or control AFSC, so they didn't know that I had retrained in the record, if you will. So I'm there, you know. I love this story. As a bomb You're a vetted. <laughs> You're a you're a bomb loader to everybody else that matters, yeah. and, you're, and you're a fully qualified controller. Yeah. That's fantastic. In fact, one of the supervisors there, he got pissed off at me. He said, "I don't care if you got jump wings or not. You're not in a jump slot here. You unblouse your boots." So I had to unblouse my boots. <laughs> oh my and, god! Uh, and oh, I, we're gonna have to have a different talk, my guy. Yeah, and I think when I left there was the, I think the only time in my career from that point all the way through chief that. Uh, that I ever got marked down on my EPR uh, because, performance because report because they were pissed off at me. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So, well, uh, wow. that and I got in a fight with one of the supervisors and they didn't, I mean, oh, okay. they didn't like that either. Well, yeah. So. Yeah. Get in a fight's a technique. Like you can, you know, it's not, maybe not preferred. <laughs> Sometimes it is a preferred technique. Yeah. But like, so, so chief, what, like, 
seeing yeah, seeing a PJ and all that kind of stuff. But what was it about Combat Control that like that drew you to it? Um, I like the excitement. These guys were all jumpers, scuba, not you know combat diving, not re required back then. But uh, when I was a bomb loader, I mean, I never went you know, temporary duty any place, TDY, I was there at the base loading bombs day in and day out, um, you know, Thailand for that year, I was loading bombs 10 hours a day, six days a week. And uh, I got, got tired of that. That's a lot of excitement loading explosives, but, and, and ammo and the guns, but it wasn't enough. I was looking for something else. And when I ran into these guys at, at Herbert, I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And at the time, there was actually two career fields that were combat controllers, air traffic controllers, radio maintenance. Oh, wow. So we had guys that would switch back and forth between TAC-P units and combat control teams. So uh, I think they had just started to change where we were going to uh, not have radio maintenance guys uh, as combat controllers anymore. So the guys that wanted to retrain uh, – had the opportunity and in fact a guy i ran into there at keesler in the retraining mode was a guy named buddy bowden and uh buddy um was a big help to me later because when i was at homestead trying to get an assignment i couldn't talk to anybody no one i was gonna you know put an ig complaint in i was gonna go but first i went to my first sergeant he says well you need to go to the commander and let's see if we can work this out so i did he happened to know the the CBPO, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, I think, I don't know if it was squadron then, but anyway, who's guy in charge and buddy, uh, had told me to do that. He says, threaten to go to the IG team, inspector general team with your complaint, but first, you know, courtesy, go see your first shirt. Da, da, da. So I did that and I saw the uh, commander and two days later I had an assignment to Pope Air Force Base combat control team in the funny how that works. Yeah. Huh? Funny how you start having a little bit of accountability and people start really wanting to do their primary duty pretty quickly, right? No kidding, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I left there finally and uh, went to Pope. Uh, we were in aerial port squadrons back in those days. So I was in the third aerial port squadron combat control team. Um, I was only there probably a week or two. And they sent me off to combat control school. I hadn't gone to combat control school yet, but I'm assigned to the team. Oh, wow. So I went to combat control school. And uh, while I was in combat control school, my third child was born uh, early. And so the school superintendent, a guy named Tim McCann, says, hey, Sergeant Norad, uh, you know, just got a call from back home. And your wife just had a baby this morning. And do you want to? airline ticket to go back and be with your family. And I says, well, do I have to go back through combat control school? I only got like a week and a half left. And he says, oh yeah, you'd have to come back through the whole course. I said, well, let me talk to my father-in-law. See how my wife's doing, how the baby's doing. <laughs> so I did that. Listen, they didn't need me up until this so, point. I think they're doing just that's fine. That's right. You know so I mean? they didn't need me and I stayed <laughs> and I graduated. And uh, what's funny <laughs> about this is I had mentioned awesome. the two guys that I was in air traffic control school with, Mike Lampy and Bob Weller. So uh, when they find out that I'm, you know, a new dad, they're like, well, we're good buddies. You know, we went to air traffic control school and combat control school together. You know, how come you didn't name the kid after us? 
And I said, yeah, right. So I called my wife and I finally got a hold of her. And I said, uh, have you named the baby? <laughs> What's the baby's name? She says, no, I was kind of waiting for you. She said, I was thinking about Conrad. And I said, ooh, Conrad Norad. That didn't sound very <laughs> good. kind of corny. So I said, well, the guys here that I'm in school with, they're kidding me about how come we didn't name the baby after them. So what's their name? I said, Michael Lampy and Robert Weller. She said, Michael, Robert, Norad. That sounds pretty good. I said, okay, do it. Like, go back <laughs> in the classroom. I said, all right, you guys, shut up. The kid's named after you. No. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yes, you are is. there for the team. <laughs> That's right. That is the team stuff, Chief. That is keeping it real. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> so, And uh, Mike was stationed at Herbert at the time. Uh, when we uh, get out of combat control school, but I, uh, I ended up being stationed with him in the Philippines later on. And, uh, and then we hooked up a lot because uh, later in life um, he became the U S special ops command command chief. And I uh, became the AFSOC before special operations command command chief. And we kind of overlapped most of that time. So we'd go to conferences together and all that. So I got to see Mike quite a bit. We're still friends to this day. And I, see him whenever i can he always wishes me a happy veterans day and birthday yeah. you name it so anyway all right yeah, so yeah. i'm at pope uh i do uh almost three years there i uh i thought about getting out again but i had a pretty good sized bonus so i said hmm i'll think i'll take the bonus so i i took my assignment to the Philippines. It was a two-year assignment. So I had to extend to accept the assignment, which I did. Sure. And then it wasn't two or three months later before I left, they decided that people that were prior service with over five years total active duty time weren't authorized the bonus. <laughs> so uh, of course. they tricked me into re-enlisting and, uh, or extending and then uh, I had to go to the, to Thailand for two years anyway, so I just re-enlisted. And, and then from that point on, I said, well, I guess I'm stuck, so uh, I'm going to do my best. I had a made a goal. I had a great supervisor. His name was Leo Whitaker, and uh, Leo kind of taught me the ropes about, you know, making a study plan to get scores on your your PFE professional military education uh, exam and your specialty exam, SKT, I think it was called. Yep. So uh, I yep, still is. So I took his, his uh, supervision to heart and uh, he said, you got to have goals. So I set my goal. I want to make chief under 20. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I uh, went from there and I studied a lot. I made tech pretty fast, even though I had to start all over again as an E4 for time and grade and all that, but the study and paid off and uh, made tech right away. And uh, in the Philippines, um, when I went there in 1974, and we were going over to Utapau, Thailand, where I was stationed previously in uh and we were. Is that base still open, Chief, or did you kill that I one? I killed too? that one. Yeah. I <laughs> oh, got it. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so Chief uh, Chief Peaches has a hard out here, so he's okay. gonna he's gonna hit you with a question yeah. so he can get back. He's actually at work. Though. Okay. Uh, what are you doing so, now, Peaches? What's what's your job now? So I'm at the weapon school. Um, oh. I'm back in Vegas. So I'm oh, the chief okay. of the weapon school. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, 
yeah, it's a it's a good time. It's a great yeah. assignment, and I'm I'm stoked to be here. So all right, um, still and I, up I definitely. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of bummed because I was I was had you know all this. I had the schedule blocked off for for me to mm-hmm. for us to chat the whole time, but then last night something came up, and I so I got to bounce. But um, and I don't want to skip ahead too much. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is um, kind of about. And again, I'm, I'm sure you're going to hit, you know, all the stuff in Cambodia, Panama, you know, but like CCT and I guess PJ for that, for that matter, wasn't special operations forces back then. And part of that is because SOCOM didn't exist, but yeah. like, I, I want to make sure that we hit like how that transition happened, you know, because at least for okay. CCT, you know, we were, we were Mac or Mobility Air Command, which is now, you know, uh, AMC Air Mobility Command now, um, and that transitioned into the soft world once SOCOM stood up. Well, um, actually, we did have special ops teams back then uh, assigned under uh, – Hurlburt was in TAC, Tactical Air Command. Now it's ACC. So Hurlburt was a special ops team. They worked a lot with beacons and stuff with the, uh, uh, the gunship and uh, – MC-130 combat talons and so on. And then there was a small team that was assigned to the 7th Special Operations Squadron in Germany at Rhein-Main Air Base, Germany. But the rest, you're right, we were all in uh, in military airlift command in, uh, in aerial port squadrons. Um, so jumping ahead um, to 19... Well, in 1981, I went to... Fort Bragg or Pope Air Force Base, and I joined the unit that had just stood up that one military airlift combat operations staff, that one MACOS. Um, and so when I was there, um, I was a team leader. Mike Lampy was uh, the other team leader. We had two teams back then. I was a silver team leader, and Mike was blue team leader. But uh, I got selected to go to the senior NCO academy, and I did. And while I was at the Senior NCO Academy, lo and behold, Grenada takes place. Mike's team and my team both jump in, get a combat jump, and I'm pissed. You know, I'm oh, wow. here I am in school. So, Chief, hold on. Did you just did you just dare just like gloss over the fact that you jumped into Grenada with a combat jump? Pete, you got to bounce. Thanks for coming. I gotta bounce. We'll see you Wayne, next time. Chief, see you, it's great All seeing right. you, buddy. Oh, okay, okay. And the teams made the jump. I was in school, and my team and uh, Mike's team both. Uh, got to jump in there so i uh, was kind of left out on that because of going to professional military sure. education anyway so i missed out on that but uh, during that operation um general mall uh was the 23rd air force commander and they had put her rescue for a special operations wing combat control most of it not all of it in under 23rd Air Force. It was like Military Lift Command's Special Operations okay. Air Force. So after Grenada took place, they called um, Colonel Carney up to uh, headquarters Military Lift Command and 23rd Air Force, and they said, hey, you know, this was a like a rescue uh, operation, uh, and so was uh, Desert One when you went after the uh, hostages right. in Iran said, uh, 
don't you think you need some pararescue? Now we're talking. Coach said, yeah. So coach said, yeah, we could use a few. So uh, anyway, he comes back and he calls me up and said, yeah, hey, Wayne, we're going to get some pararescue men. I said, well, good. I said, let me uh, let me get with my classmate here, Wayne Fisk. And another uh, another legend in the we'll, community, Chief Wayne Fisk. Himself. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked to Wayne and we had known each other from the Philippines, too. So we were in class together and he said, oh, you're getting PJs. He said, let me give you some names of some guys that would be great there. Well, by the time I got the names and I called Colonel Carney back, General Mall had already picked his PJ leader. His name was John Pagini, and John was on terminal yep. leave. And he called John up and said, Hey, I got this special job. Uh, you know, if you want, we can we can bring you back on active duty and send you to Pope Fort Bragg. And he said, What's the job all about? He said, Well, I can't really talk about it, but uh, he said, uh, You get to exceed the regular Air Force grooming standards and you get to wear civilian clothes. John, John said, Pagini. put me back in. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was lucky enough to meet yeah. uh, Chief Fagini um, at a at the uh, oh, yeah. premiere of the movie The Last Full Measure in Ohio, in, in Pitts' hometown oh, yeah. Yeah. of all places. Yeah. yeah so, and it, to, for the listeners that aren't tracking what's yeah. exactly going on here, this so, was, this was the the living birth of yeah. the Tier One unit. Yeah. So that was in I think it was sometime in eighty three after Grenada. And those two guys came in, and uh, in 84, in fact, the first chief there was Nick Corelli, and he retired. So I wasn't a chief yet. I was a senior, but I was the senior enlisted guy. So I filled the chief's position. So I kind of (laughs) was the guy that tried to integrate these guys into the combat control team and bring PJs and integrate them. So uh, that was a little bit of a task. Some of the PJs didn't want to be integrated and the combat controllers, they didn't want to get PJs involved because they finally got a great mission and now we're going to have to share it with another sure. career field. And they'd already had the accolades from Vietnam from all the saves that they did there sure. and everything. But anyway, uh, we, we integrated uh, John and the other guy, uh, sadly just passed away, I think last month, uh, Emilio Hasso. <clears throat> was the other PJ. He was a staff sergeant. I think John was a master and he made senior before he retired. So that was the first integration. And I think I felt like um, I wasn't really part of the core of the team anymore because all my teammates had jumped in, got a combat jump, and they started uh, that 23rd Air Force and they had a senior master sergeant mm-hmm. slot and a captain slot. So they asked me if I wanted to go do that. So at the end of three years at, excuse me, Dat one Macos and later under 23rd Air Force, it was called Dat four math coast number Air Force comrade operations staff. (gasps) Excuse me. So I went to, uh, I went to Scott Air Force Base and uh, was there with uh, then Captain Mike Longoria, retired as a Brigadier General uh, years later. And then a little while after that, we brought in another controller. His name was Rex Holman, and Rex was actually on the Iranian rescue mission. Um, he was the only one that wasn't part of the Brand X guys, oh, they wow. called it. But uh, So we brought Rex up there, and uh, 
worked with him. Um, let's see, that's, uh, it takes me into, uh, 84 to 87. Um, I put on chief in October of, uh, 86 and us OCOM, uh, was standing up. Let's see if I got those day. I think it was, so us OCOM, uh, yeah, they were already stood up. So U.S. SOCOM had stood up, and they had a combat control chief position there. And I had finished uh, three years at the staff at 2030 or 4th, so I volunteered to go there. And there was another chief at Scott. His name was Bob Phillips, combat control chief. And he had an assignment to go to Herbert Field in a chief's position down here at Hurlburt. So I started thinking about it. I said, you know, I've been on a on a staff for three years. I want to get back in the action and lead men again and all this stuff. So I talked to Bob. And I said, hey, how about we switch? I'd like to go to Hurlburt. And uh, uh, if you would take the position at, at McDill at USOCOM. So we agreed and they changed the uh, assignments. And we did have a chief down here named Rick Crutchfield. And Rick uh, was in the squadron, and I was still on the 2304 staff. And then we stood up the special tactics group. And you were the first chief um, of the special tactics group, correct? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I did uh, I did that for a while, and I told uh, Chief Crutchfield, I said, you know, Rick, when I talked to you about me coming down here, I said, we kind of agreed. I thought that I would be able to go to the squadron, and you'd, you've you never filled a staff position, so you'd come up here right. and fill right. a staff yeah. position. You thought you were going so back you, to the teams. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we eventually switched out, which was great because uh, I went over to the, to the squadron, um, and – Shortly there, integration of the PJs at the, then it was called the 1723rd Combat Control Squadron, and later it became 23rd Special Tactics Squadron as it is today. So anyway, Rick and I switched, and then not long after we switched, uh, Panama took place. I got to uh, make a combat jump into Panama, and uh, Mike Lampy was at now they call it two four STS. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, the 23rd, was given the uh, mission um, Rio Hato in Panama and make the jump in there with the third of the 75th Rangers and some second of the 75th Rangers. So uh, the commander up there, his name was Craig Brochi at the two four, he said, Hey, uh, Wayne, I'm going to send you a few PJs because you don't. We really didn't have any uh, at that time. And and he said, Chief Lampy, too. I said, okay. So uh, here it is years later, and Chief Lampy and I got to make yeah. a combat jump together. <laughs> well, how amazing is it that two, you know, yeah, yeah. How how amazing is it that, that two chiefs uh, got to make a combat jump into the, you know, there were, you know, the combat operations were few and far between kind of at that. Panama yeah. popped up, and it really was a, an exigent threat that we had to address. Something else uh, that I want to highlight for history's sake really came out of this. You had somebody that went above and beyond 
and jumped essentially into withering machine gun fire. And you thought that he deserved to be recognized more so than the medal really communicated. Were you the first person that got the V device added to those combat medals? Well, you can say yes, but really, no, it happened later. So what happened was uh, we went into Panama, and the guy in particular was uh, Staff Sergeant at the time, Gordy Tully. And okay. uh, Gordy, Gordy made the combat jump. Um, one of the aircraft taxied where he wasn't supposed to, and his outboard engine hit a parachute hanging from a tree one of the ranger's parachutes. So it put, put out the uh, outboard engine on the right side. So now he's got to make a three engine takeoff. So he needed more runway than what we initially had secured. So it sent Gordy down the runway and he cleared another thousand or 15 feet of runway, got into a firefight down there with the Panamanian defense forces. And uh, I mean, small skirmish scared him away. Aircraft went down made a 180 and took off and uh, the pilot uh, got a distinguished flying cross for it actually. Wow. And then, so and most of the Rangers, you know, they have what they call the combat infantry badge, the CIB. And I think almost all of them uh, got a CIB for going on that mission. Well, we didn't have uh, a CIB equivalent in the air force. Mm-hmm. So, so what happened was um, we come back and we put in medals for the guys. And, of course, us ranking guys, you know, Major Longoria, Captain Schultheis, myself, Mike Lampy, we all get bronze stars because of our rank, basically. Not not with a V, so we weren't heroes or anything. Sure. But, uh, but guys like Gordy Tully and the Texan below, they got accommodation medals. And it, I don't know, it just didn't sit right with me. So I wrote up a suggestion. Colonel Carney signed it at the group, sent it over to the headquarters, and uh, they sent it in for consideration to put a V device on accommodation and Air Force Achievement Medals for those that earned it in combat operations. Well, initially it got it got turned down. and. Uh, I forget how long after that um, I retired, uh, basically one January 97, and it still wasn't approved. But right after I retired, uh, I kept working at uh, Herbert in the 720th group. I had started this parachute demonstration team for recruiting purposes, uh, the Air Force STARS, the acronym for Special Tactics and Rescue Specialists. But anyway, uh, while I was there, uh, the guy that took my place, Mike Reynolds, called me up. He says, hey, Wayne, you still got that package on uh, the V device? And I said, yeah, I'm sure I got around some places. Well, give it, give it to me. They're going to take another look at some uh, woods and decks. And I think maybe we got a chance to uh, get it approved this time. So I said, sure. So uh, uh, chief of uh, the A1 personnel at the headquarters, uh, AFSOC, uh, Vince Philpy uh, put all the paperwork together and uh, sent it up to Air Force level. And uh, eventually, I think Secretary Sheila Widnow was the Secretary of the Air Force. She sort of got credit for it because she signed 
off on uh, the decoration. They also added, uh, putting it on uh, air medals and uh, distinguished flying crosses if they were wow. you know, earned in combat operations. You know, the pilots already had all, all the wings and special medals for flying, and now <laughs> they had to add that in there, which is fine, but. <laughs> right. They had to take it anyway. They, yeah. be a- it's the only way it probably got, got approved, you know, because uh, <laughs> aviators were going to get it too. So anyway, sure, that's, this, that's how that, this goes. is a, this is going to be a theme as we continue to talk. So even after you retired, you found a way to positively impact the career field, <laughs> be, be it through the the parachute program or, or yeah. finding a way to, to get that, to see it through. I, I think I know this answer, but I'd like to ask you directly, how did, how did it feel to get your men recognized for those accomplishments? Well, it was, it was good and bad because they didn't make it retroactive. So you only got it if you earned it oh. after it got approved. So okay. Gordy, Gordy Tully still doesn't have a V on his combination medal. Uh, but he knew that I had put in for the V device based on his actions and he really appreciated that even though he never got to wear the v uh you know he thanked me every time i see him he said you know i appreciate you doing that and now the guys get what what they deserve and what what i uh had to kind of really go back and look at i had to have my ducks in a row to to submit this package well the tac p's that jumped in and were in combat right there with us they were in a joint billet and there was a V device authorized on a joint accommodation medal. Oh, so, the wow. TAC, so the TAC-Ps got to put the V on on their joint medal. But I, not I imagine there were some pointed conversations with you in the <laughs> TAC-P community, I assume, Chief. No, nah, we didn't. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, no. We're not going there. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. I want to I back up a little bit because you were the second sure. AFSOC command chief. We cleared it up. We thought you were the first. You were the first in our hearts. We'll say that. (laughs) With your time as the AFSOC command chief, what were some things that you tried to accomplish during your time in that seat? Because you lived in a time where, you know, AFSOC didn't even exist. SOCOM didn't even exist. And now you were the second command chief of a new organization inside of SOCOM. What were some projects that you were proud of that you got to see uh, over the finish line or that you started? Okay. Um, So the first... um call them senior enlisted advisors back in those days. The first uh, AFSOC, I'll call him command chief now because we're all familiar with it, uh, James R. Robertson, Robbie, great guy. He uh, he was on a uh, um, 32-year program where they extended some chiefs beyond 30 if you were you know working for general officer like in senior enlisted uh, positions or it was some critical AFSC. So he was on a 32nd year program. uh, And after about a year of AFSOC standing up, he decided that he'd had enough. And uh, he decided to retire earlier than expected. Um, I had done all the CCT chief jobs up to that point, I think, that I could have. You know, group chief, squadron chief, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So I was looking at doing something else. So I told Robbie, I said, hey, if the position comes open over in in Okinawa or in uh, 
Milton Hall, England for senior list advisor. I said, I'd like to put my name in the hat. He said, okay, I'll keep that in mind. So I don't know how long it was after that, but uh, he calls me up one day and he says, uh, hey, Wayne, um, I uh, just wanted to let you know first that I'm retiring and uh, General Fister is going to be looking for a replacement. And uh, he knows you because you worked together at Little Rock Air Force Base years ago. And uh, he's interested in, in hiring you if you want to come up for an interview. And I says, well, what about the what about the wing or group chief senior list advisor position first? You know, jumping all the way to the major <laughs> command. I don't know if I was yeah. ready for that. But anyway, sure. he said, no, you, you've been a group chief and you want an IG team. So, you know, how headquarters works and all this stuff. So anyway, um, General Fister hired me uh, to be the command chief. Well, when Robbie left, he said, Wayne, the first thing you need to do, he said, we've been stood up a Almost a year now, he said, uh, we don't have an order of the sword uh, regulation yet. So major commands can put in somebody, an officer, to be uh, recognized for the order of the sword, which is very prestigious. It's pretty much the most prestigious uh, thing that enlisted folks can bestow on any officer. So so I started work, working on that. And... Uh, got the regulation uh, done. Um, during that time, uh, it was, there was somebody from, I think it was Okinawa. Um, and I don't know if it was because I was visiting over there with the general or he called me up. I can't recall now, but anyway, he said, you know, we go to deployments all the time with the army and, you know, our chiefs never get to be, you know, the, the deployed, chief sure and uh i said yeah it's probably because they have command sergeant majors positions they have command master chief in the navy mm-hmm. and i says we just have chief so uh there's no special designation on your on your sleeve or in your title but i said you know what i'm going to work on that i think that's a good idea so uh I wrote that up, um, going to meetings with uh, the other command chiefs and the chief master on the Air Force. Um, I thought while I was on active duty that I was going to get it approved to have a new title, command chief, master sergeant, and the new stripe with the star on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't, didn't happen on my watch because, uh, I don't know, it was Chief Campanelli, Chief Master on the Air Force Campanelli. And I thought he was for that because we were kind of discussing at one point in time, he was the AMC, Air Mobility Command uh, Chief, and, and I was AFSOC. And we were kind of like deciding who would write the package up to forward it up to the Pentagon. And uh, he said, well, it was your idea, so why don't you do it? And I did. And then not long after that, he became Chief Master on the Air Force, and he didn't push it up there. I don't know why. I thought it right. Done deal at that point, uh, right? I it like you worked deal. on it together. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it wasn't a done deal. I retired, and not long after, again, uh, Eric Benkin, Chief Master on the Air Force. He was the USAFE, U.S. Air Force's uh, Europe uh, senior list advisor, and, and we got along really good. And he said, "You know what? I'm going to push that uh, that command." Chief uh, Master Sergeant 
title and uh, and stripe. So uh, he said, uh, I know you're retired now, but believe me, I'll tell everybody that this was your project. And uh, if it comes Good. about, uh, you get recognition for it. So <laughs> I kind of did. In fact, with some time when I'm around some brand new chiefs and they're just putting a, a brand new senior enlisted advisors. So you know where that stripe came from? <laughs> with that star? Just a, the kids yeah. would call that a light flex. Just a light yeah. flex. Okay, yeah, light flex. No, no, no big deal. I'm just saying. I, but that stripe came uh, from yeah. us. So where did the stars? I, I got one uh, other thing too. Oh, uh, no. yeah. Uh, as the command chief, uh, every two years, I think it was, they get all the major command um, command chiefs together and they go to to Lackland and they review basic training. Mm-hmm. And I went down there and because of my, you know, position as a, or my AFSC previously as a combat controller, they put me on the uh, physical fitness committee along sure. with a guy named Tommy Roberts. And Tommy was uh, the air combat command senior enlisted advisor or command chief. And he was a big volleyball, all air force volleyball player. So he, he and I chaired that uh, committee. And uh, so we put in some recommendations and probably hard for you to believe, but back then they would fall out in the morning for PT. They had their uh, fatigue pants on then green t-shirts and I think they gave them, they issued them uh, basic tennis shoes, not running shoes, but basic, I forget what kind, Converse, not Converse. Well, maybe it was. Anyway, uh, and the instructors would stand there. <clears throat> they would have the, the formations run circles around them out on the big pad, and they would stand there and watch them, you know, run. Someone would be smoking a cigarette, drinking coffee until <laughs> PT was over. So uh, okay, that's so a technique, we, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> we wrote that up together, and uh, from that they changed it so that the instructors had to lead the PT and be involved in it. They uh, they started issuing shorts and special uh, U.S. Air Force white with a blue collar, I think, uh, PT shorts and shirts and a decent uh, running shoe. So, uh, so that, that happened uh, during my time. And then the other thing that I fought and, and one was in the PFE manual, uh, they have a lot of history in there. <clears throat> a lot of history about some of the famous generals, you know, Hap Arnold and mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Pilots, manuals, <laughs> right? Yeah. They did have uh, a little bit on, uh, a couple of enlisted folks that had uh, earned the uh, medal of honor. Mm-hmm. Well, they decided that they had to shorten the, the PFE and they were going to take out the ribbons uh, page that they had in there. They had a color page with all the ribbons. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You go to that and you know, yeah, yeah. it was the back and, cover uh, of the PFE oh, yeah. for yeah, right, right when I uh, enlisted back in 2001, yeah. that was, I distinctly okay. remember studying and on the back, that that page was a glossy page, and yeah. you could literally yeah. turn the book over and, and figure out who was what. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they were going to take out the enlisted history out of the PFE. So Travesty. I told them, I said, "Look, this this is a uh, professional military education manual. 
I said, you can go to any library and you can read all you want about Hap Arnold and uh, all these other famous aviators. But I said, you can't go anyplace except the PFE and in one book, read about the Medal of Honor recipients and Air Force Cross recipients that were enlisted. So I said, please don't take that out. That's an important part of enlisted history. And uh, so they stopped. <clears throat> they stopped it. And uh, uh, they, in fact, I think they even added, uh, they went and put all of the Air Force Cross recipients, I think, in there. And I don't believe they had all of them before. They did. So that was another thing that I, uh, that I pushed and, uh, and got approved <laughs> on my watch. I wasn't retired yet. And uh, I, was, I was happy that that, that happened. So. I guess the command chief stripe, the uh, the V device, uh, order the that sword, PT gear, da, 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 PT yeah. gear. Yeah. Those were some of the things that I was able to do because of being in the uh, you know command chief uh, position for major command. You get to talk directly to the chief master on the Air Force and his staff and everything. So that's I didn't really do a lot. Uh, in fact, I kind of tried to stay away from doing a lot with combat control and pararescue back then. Because um, I didn't want it to look like I was favoring them. So I didn't make a lot of visits to the combat control squadrons or special tactics squadrons. I went to the first special operations wing, some of their Mm -hmm. units, you know, overseas with the general when we did tours uh, or visits over there. So uh, I really didn't really didn't do a lot for the special tactics community as a whole. So. So I did that for three years. <clears throat> General uh, Bruce Fister hired me, and then uh, he left, made his third star. It was a two-star billet at the time, and he went off and uh, got his third star at a numbered Air Force so at Travis, I think. So his replacement was a uh, major general named uh, Jim Hobson, James Hobson. So when he came in, he was there a couple of weeks in the seat. He called me up and says, hey, Chief, come on in here. I want to talk to you. It's okay. Go in there and see if I'm getting fired or what. So I. <laughs> it's always good. It's like you're getting called I, the president's office. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't have a, a former relationship with him like I did General Fister. So I went into his office and he says, Look, so I'm going to be up front with you. He said, uh, I got my own guy in, in mind to be my command chief. But he said, I've checked around with the units and other people and they say you're doing a pretty damn good job, uh, so I, I don't want to make it look like I'm firing you. So how about you stay on a year with me? And uh, I said, okay, well, that'll give me three years. That's about all I need, you know, mm-hmm. eating chicken and steak dinners at all these banquets and everything. I <laughs> was responsible for 10 cattle and 40 chickens, I guess, for the time there I left go. that yeah, job. Exactly. So, I, so I agreed with him. I said, yeah, that'd be great. So he hired uh, Mike Reynolds. Uh, to take my place. And I had 29 years in the service at that point. I said, well, I don't want to be a quitter. So I went back to the group. <laughs> 29 years, Chief. Come on. Yeah. So I went back to the group commander, uh, Craig Brochi, and I said, sir, I said, you know, we have big recruiting problems for combat control and pararescue. I said, I got a year left. How about if I come over to the group? I said, I've already held that position and I don't want to take uh, Chief Stanilan, PJ Chief, Group Chief at the time, and Combat Control Chief Mike Steinbeck. I said, I want to take their job. So would you just, you know, put me on a special uh, 
project and I want to work with the recruiting uh, service and go out and try to explain, you know, who we need and how the fitness of it and all this stuff and tell them, you know, what the job was all about. So he said, great, come on. So I was in there in that position for just a few year, a uh, few months rather. And uh, guys from McCord called me up and said, Hey, we're doing a parachute jump for a uh, boat race up here in, uh, in Washington, Oregon, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where the three rivers come together up there. So, yep. uh, so why don't you come on up and uh, we're going to set up a booth and you can talk to the recruiters in the area and all that. So I said, fine. So I went up and I actually jumped with them. And after that, we're at the booth and everybody that's coming over and talking to us, are you in the army or you in the Marines? What, what service you guys in? No, we're air force. No, air oh, force, I right. didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. Well, we had the gray, Silver, if you will, Ram Air parachutes. So there was no distinction that we were Air Force. They were just like the armies and so on. So uh, they talked me into those other guys uh, that jumped. They talked me into coming back and trying to get our own parachute demonstration team started. So I came back and talked to Colonel Brochi about that. <clears throat> he said, okay, let's, let's try it. So uh, wrote a letter, sent it over to General Hobson and, uh, asked to stand up this parachute team so he said sounds good to me so he forwarded the letter to the pentagon and at the time the vice chief of staff was uh, a general named uh they call him fig newton lloyd newton mm-hmm. and he was a, a former thunderbird pilot back when he was a major or lieutenant colonel so he knew knew all about the recruiting uh, part of uh, having demonstration teams and it was the 50th anniversary of the air force coming up the next year this is 96 perfect so the next year so i said hey uh, yeah let's do it well we didn't have any money we didn't have any special parachutes uh we didn't have anybody trained and we get this letter back in july and basically general newton had signed it and he said yeah and i want your guys to jump into some nfl games on pow mia recognition day 22 september (laughs) (laughs) oh solid so a month and a half here you go yeah so we really didn't have a lot of money but we took it out of operations money i guess and we we bought i don't know half a dozen parachutes uh i had it made with the uh, red white and blue canopies blue uh harness and uh, it had the air force aim high logo on it at the time so uh and then we didn't have time to get special um jumpsuits made so the coast guard i think it was maybe it's a navy but one of the two services had blue uh, flight suits so i got some of those blue flight suits and we had special name tags made up with you know stars and had three red white and blue stars on it and off we went and 22 september 1996 uh three controllers jumped into uh carolina panthers football game uh pre-game and then me and the guys from mccord four of us jumped into new england patriots game at halftime and that was the beginning of the united states air force special tactics and rescue specialist stars so uh, that's unbelievable chief <laughs> so i did that uh and, and then my retirement was coming up brochi says well 50th anniversary is coming up you know we need to put this team out there so 
Uh, I don't want to use uh, my chief in the group here to do that like you did. I want I want to put it on contract. You're qualified, so go write a resume. And anyway, uh, first, first he tried to get me extended. And because I had 30 years, and there was a little bit of downsizing, I think, at the time, I said, no, chief stays in. Somebody else isn't going to make chief, and some master ain't going to make senior, and blah, blah, blah. So they turned it down at the Pentagon. And uh, so he said, I'm putting it on a contract, and he did, and hired me back. And try to shorten this up a little bit, we ended up making 162 um, demonstration jumps over the next six years until after 9-11 happened. And then in October of uh, 02, we made our last jump at a NASCAR race up in Dover, Delaware. And Colonel Rith, Craig Rith was the group commander. And he said, Wayne, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, we're going to have to shut the program down. We don't have Billets for the jump team, and they need to do their part in the war on terror and all that. So I said, Mm -hmm. I understand. But he said, I want to keep you, though, because I want you to keep working with recruiting service. So I did. And uh, and then I worked uh, going out to different bases. I'd set it up with the recruiting service and uh, meet some young kids. But I'd also uh, go to places where they were trying to get uh, recruiters uh, they would go to different bases and recruit uh, from these different bases, and I tagged along with them. So they would give their briefings on becoming a recruiter, and I gave briefings on how to become a combat controller or prayer rescue. Well, and I did that fantastic, for, for a long time. Yeah, that is a that is the very first time in this hour that we spent chatting that you and I have absolutely anything in common because now we <laughs> sort of do the same thing about getting <laughs> yeah. the word out there. I do want to yeah. transition a bit, though. You the uh, you weren't done giving back. You, you still did so much work with the Combat Control Foundation. I just want to open that conversation up, and I want to understand exactly how do you still have so much to give to the community, and, and what's your favorite part about engaging? Um, and I, I'm a little bit um, blind to this. Are you with the Combat Control Foundation? Is there a different name for it? Yeah, they, we didn't have a foundation in Combat Control at the time. It was just uh, the association. So um, the foundation work I had... Uh, uh, I was the first enlisted guy to be on the board of directors for the uh, Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Mm-hmm. It would have been Mike Lampy, but he was still on active duty, and they thought it might be a conflict of interest. So sure. he told me, says, "Well, my good buddy Wayne Norad just retired, so why don't you, you know, see if he'd like to do that?" So I did, and I stayed with him 19 years. I think I had more years uh, on the board than than anyone else, and. When we, way back then, we raised money for any special operations force member who was killed in action. We would send their children to school, pay for all the tuition and, and, and all that, books, mm-hmm. et cetera, bought them a computer printer when they started their freshman year so they'd have that at their disposal. And uh, we did that for quite a few years, and we really raised more money than we needed. Mm-hmm. So then we said, well, why don't we cover those that get killed in training as well? So we had to go back in time and try to locate all these families that had lost their husbands in training. And uh, we did that. And so now we are covering anybody that was killed in training as well as killed in action. And then it's kept getting bigger and we got more money. And now they actually cover everybody that's in the line of duty 
in special operations that gets killed. Wow. So, so we cover uh, all of those children. Uh, they have expanded the program so that uh, if kids uh, in grammar school or whatever grade they're in, uh, if they're struggling with a subject or two, we hire tutors and the tutors help these children get up to speed so that when it's time for them to go to college, they'll have the grades to, uh, to qualify. And they do all the paperwork with them. Uh, they have a camp, I think, once a year down in the Tampa area. They go into a dorm down there at one of the colleges and uh, uh, bring them in and say, okay, you're going to go off to colleges, what to expect, and uh, they get a lot of good information. They'll bring in a couple of students that are in college that went through the program previously, and uh, they're a big help to the younger students that are just going into their freshman year. So anyway, I did that for yeah. 19 years and uh, retired uh, from that. Uh, my, my combat control, uh, thing, I guess, um, back in the early seventies, there was a, uh, a jump fest, they called it here at Holbert field. <clears throat> it was, uh, raising money for POWs, uh, MIA, uh, you know, prisoners of war missing in action. So we had, uh, a couple of jump fests down here annually. And after, probably 73 or something, 72 to 74, somewhere in that time frame, I think it was, uh, the guys down here at Herbert decided to start an association, Combat Control Association. So they stood mm-hmm. it up. But then uh, a couple years later, the uh, Jump Fest, uh, the POWs were back home and all that. Uh, so they really didn't have a gathering. Uh, to recognize the the jump fest people and have a big mm-hmm. banquet and have a lot of camaraderie, so they kind of like went away. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So they weren't they weren't doing anything. So at this particular time, I was the uh, commandant, superintendent, whatever the title was of Combat Control School at Little Rock, and we had a guy uh, that was killed on a parachute jump at Dias Air Force Base. We had a combat control team there at Dias. And we had an honor graduate program, combat control school, but we didn't have any recognition panel or anything, plaques. So back then you couldn't get money to do those kind of things. It was, I guess, illegal. I don't know. So I called up the president of the combat control association lieutenant colonel retired named dick sigmund and i said sir i know that you're still the president but i haven't seen much activity i said do you have any money left i said i would like to get a board made with plaques or uh, plates on this big honor graduate board uh, made in honor of uh, his name was jerry medrick was the guy that was killed i said in honor of uh, Jerry Medrick and uh, we'll recognize all the honor graduates from here on. So, uh, so how much you need. So I told him <clears throat> and a week or so later, he had a meeting with the rest of the folks here uh, in the uh, association. They said, Wayne, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to dissolve down here. We'll just send you all the money that we have and you can have the combat control <laughs> association up there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. So, I guess I'll take yeah. a check. 
so I took the check and there wasn't much more than what it cost to have that uh, undergraduate board made. But anyway, I got the check and we, we put that up. But so from that point on, uh, I started p- producing newsletters, tried to do it like every six months, get information from the different squadrons, teams, whatever, and uh, publish newsletters. And was this the start of canopy not, chatter? Is that, was that the name it, of it? it? No, that was the pararescue. Okay, got Canopy it. Canopy yeah. chatter. Yep, got it. This was just called Combat Control Newsletter, I think. Okay. So uh, I didn't have a secretary or a vice president or directors or anything, so it was me, and I did that for for about ten years, and then I finally gave it up when I got here at Herbert and was a chief and I had a lot on my plate. So I said, you know, I need to get rid of this. I've carried this thing along yeah. enough. I had st- stood up a, a life member program and so on and so forth. So I uh, gave it up and uh, lo and behold, about five or six years later, <laughs> they asked me if I'd be the president again. So I did it again for, <laughs> I, th- I think, another four years. So I think I had a total of like 14 years as the uh, Combat Control Association president, but we didn't have any money to help the people uh, that uh, needed, you know, our help within the career field. So uh, uh, after long after I left, um, they started the foundation and that's taken off and Mike LaMonica and Mike West and Kyle Stambro and some of those guys have really taken it a long way. Um, They don't produce newsletters, which I wish they did because uh, I think the, members uh, appreciated getting a hard copy of what was going around or right. what was going on around the world. You so anyway, that was Instagram that, account now, chief. That's yeah. how they put out all the information. Yeah. Get you so up now, so, so, so because I didn't have enough, I guess my plate wasn't quite full enough. <laughs> uh, chief Binnaker, chief master on the air force Binnaker lived here in the Herbert area and he was, uh, on the board of directors for the Air Commando Association, so uh, he he passed away, and the president of the association asked me if I would take his place until the next election. So I replaced Jim Binnaker uh, on the uh, board of directors for the Air Commando Association, and then later <clears throat> I ran and was voted in. I was probably probably no one else was stupid enough to put their name in. So I was unopposed winner. Uh, so I did that for a while. And uh, then they put me on the hall of fame uh, voting committee. And I did that for a few years and eventually ended up as the secretary of that for a couple of years. And in the meantime, uh, Dennis Barnett, who was the president talked me into uh, becoming the vice president so I did that for a couple of years and then Colonel Barnett had run out of uh, his length of time that uh, the president is allowed to serve. It's two consecutive two year tours and he was at the end of his fourth year. And so he asked me if I would run for president. <clears throat> so I got talked into that. I said, I'm only doing one tour though. So I did, I did one tour as the president and, uh, and along with that, uh, in 2012, we started a, uh, air commando foundation 
And that has taken off and done great things for all air commandos, not just controllers or PJs or aviators, anybody assigned to Air Force Special Operations Command. Absolutely. So that so they got they got quite a bit of money now, and they do great things, uh, just like the PJ Foundation and the Combat Control Foundation, et cetera. Absolutely. Uh, all right, <laughs> Chief. That that was one uh, that your story is just absolutely amazing. I can't believe that we got it on wax. What I want to do is we always ask our guests at the end, and this is going to be great from your optic because you've seen the evolution from really, you know, if we go all the way back to your times, you know, from a bomb loader to being a cross trainee to, to the beginnings of combat control all the way through now. There are a lot of people that listen to our podcast and they are trying to. <clears throat> tackle this Herculean task of being a combat controller or being an air force special warfare. Now, do you have any Mm -hmm. words of wisdom or advice for those people that want to come in and do, you know, not, not just what, what I do, which is highly Mm -hmm. unremarkable, but you know, a 50 year career that you've had from your military service to your involvement with everything that you've done afterwards, what advice would you give those young men and women that are trying to get into this thing that we call air force special warfare? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I tell them, uh, whether they, you know, were 15 years old or 18 getting ready, is stay in school as long as you can. Get your education. If you've had enough of school and you want a great job and you want to join the military, I said, everybody loves people that serve their country. And uh, so I said, if you want to enlist and serve your country, that's great. And combat control, pararescue, TACP, uh, well, used to be special ops weather, uh, special reconnaissance. Those are all great jobs. And you can get in the special operations community and, you know, go fight with the Navy SEALs and Delta Force and, and all that stuff. Um, so, but I do tell them, I said, it's a pretty long pipeline, so you're going to have quite a bit of school to go through. So uh, you might not want to give up college right away. But if you do <laughs> and you're ready to move on, um, I think that Air Force, uh, special operations, specifically special warfare, uh, Air Force specialties are awesome jobs to have. Um, I think if I had to do it all over again, I would follow the same path. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go and try to be, be a Navy SEAL or a Special Forces Green Beret or Army Ranger or Force Recon Marine. I think that the Air Force Special Warfare community—it's um, just a great way of life. You get all the training right up front. Some of those guys have to wait years to go to free fall school and dive school, depending on their service, et cetera. So. Yeah, if you want to get in special operations and go on real-world missions, this is the place to be. So uh, go see your local recruiter and sign up. Amen, Chief. I can't say thank you enough for coming on. We really appreciate you taking your time out and sharing your story. Everybody, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and hit us up in the DMs on Instagram, or you can go to onesready.com. Also, we're always open to info at onesready.com for the email if you want to send us and you have a specific question. Chief Norad. Thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for your service and everything that you've given back to this community. We definitely don't deserve you. I want to say thanks to everybody that's still listening. Chief, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it to everybody else. Train hard. Keep going. Hoo-yah. Yeah. Well, I got one more thing that I wanted to add, and this is for the older guys because they're mad at me still. 
So when I was at 23rd Air Force up at Scott, um, we had the combat control team crest on our beret. And uh, we were now uh, at the point where we had combat control squadrons and a group and all this stuff. So as the combat control team on that crest, it doesn't signify really your Air Force specialty. And I saw the PJs crest and it said USAF Pararescue. So I changed the, the background of the original combat control, control team crest, put a globe behind it, uh, kind of specifying day and night and worldwide operations to so put that on there. And then I changed the uh, combat control team to USAF combat control. And uh, that got approved, and that's what everybody wears on there, all the enlisted wear on their array today. But there are still some of the old school guys. I like the combat control team. Why did we ever change that? So, uh, so I wasn't that popular with everybody. But I just thought I'd mention that they were they were disappointed. I think well, I, I think on my shadow box, mine actually has the crest that says combat control team <laughs> on my beret. So I feel for them. Anyway, what a perfect way right. to end it. Thanks, Chief. You all bet. right. Good talking Come to you. Come on anytime you want. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. All right.